Well, it's so good to be with you all this morning. Like Jeff said, my name is Brian Marvel from the Milwaukee area, and it's just a delight to be here. We've been here for uh, about a week or so, and it's been so fun to, to be around and see the things um, that haven't changed in the community, but also to see the things that, that have changed in the community. And, and one of those things was I was driving down Mount Vernon, and there's like a Piedmont urgent care clinic over on the, the corner of Mount Vernon and whatever road that is. And I remember when that was a blockbuster. Like, there's probably some of you here this morning, like, I don't even know what Blockbuster is. But I remember when that was a Blockbuster. And there was one weekend that Becky and I went into that Blockbuster, and we rented a movie called My Blueberry Nights. It's a, it's a movie about this young woman living in New York City. And she has been there for a few years, has a boyfriend of five years. He dumps her and breaks her heart. And at the beginning of the movie, she goes to this cafe to have blueberry pie late at night with the guy who owns the cafe, hence the title, My Blueberry Nights. And she kind of drowns her sorrows in blueberry pie. And after a few days, after a few weeks, she says, you know, I need to get out of this city. I need to go on an adventure and kind of figure out who I am again. And so she goes on this cross-country trip just to go figure out life as now a newly single woman. And her first stop is Memphis. Memphis, Tennessee, and she just shows up there and she starts working a job and she starts to just kind of engage in life there. And the job that she has is a bartender. And her first night working at this bar, she gets kind of the lowdown of her job and in walks a guy named Arnie. And Arnie is a cop from the local community and he sits down at the bar, he orders a drink and she's like, hey, what are you drinking for tonight? And he's like, I'm celebrating. And she says, really, what are you celebrating? He says, I'm celebrating my last night of drinking. I'm done. It's been too much for me. I'm done. This is it for me. So he spends a few hours there, has a few drinks, pays his bill, and goes on his way. The movie keeps going, a few other scenes, and then it comes back to her working that same bar, and in walks Arnie. And he sits down at the bar, and she's like, hey, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm celebrating. And she's like, no, no, no. Like, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm celebrating. Celebrating what? My last night of drinking. And she's confused, but goes ahead and starts to serve him. The evening goes on, and he's again shutting down the bar. And she leans across the bar as everybody's left, and he's totally gone at this point. And she says, you know, maybe you should slow down a little bit. Maybe you should cut back. And then he begins to tell her, about how he's tried to give up drinking. And he says, I go to these AA meetings, and I've been all kinds of times, and he, he pulls out a chip, a white chip, and he starts telling her, when you go to these AA meetings, and you make a commitment to sobriety, you go forward, and at the end of the meeting, you grab a white chip. And it's supposed to be the thing that you carry with you to remind you of your sobriety. And he's telling her all this, then he reaches back into his pocket, and he says, I'm the king of the white chip, and he pulls from his pocket a handful of white chips and drops them on the table. Essentially saying, like, I've tried. I've tried and tried and tried to change, but I can't. See, Arnie in that movie lives with this belief that change actually isn't possible. That we may have these things in our life that we don't like about us. There's things in our life we know that we should change. But at the end of the day, change really isn't possible. And I wonder for us this morning whether or not any of us have that belief. I wonder if we look at our lives, are we able to say, there are things about my life 
that I would like to change. And I've actually tried to change them, but it's just too hard and not possible. Maybe you find that, that anger kind of always lives deep in your belly, just below the surface, and it doesn't take much for something to ignite that anger, and then you just leave a wake of destruction in your path because anger rules your life, and you say to yourself, I would love to not be an angry person, but maybe that's just who I am. Or maybe you look at other people, and you look at what they have, and you look at their life, and you think to yourself, like, oh, if only I had that. And you get insecure as you compare yourself, and you live in this place of comparison all the time, and insecurity because of that rules your life, and you think to yourself, yeah, this is just my lot in life, right? See, sometimes we have this belief that life just comes at us, that, that we're just kind of stuck in this situation, and we just have to accept it, and we can't really change it. And this is one of those moments in the year where as we're starting a new school year, many people go into that thinking like, yes, this is the year. I'm gonna do things differently this year, but give it a few weeks, give it a month, you find yourself back at those same things, and again, you resign by the time you hit October, November, Thanksgiving, you're like, yep, this is just who I am. This is just how I am going to live. But what if there was a different way? See, when we fall into that trap of thinking that I can't change, we become passive recipients in our life, and we think that things are out of our control, and I just have to make the best of it. And it's true that there are things in your life you, you can't control. But even in those places, our passage this morning, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, says something different. It says that even in those places where you think, ah, oh, I'm just stuck in this same rut, it casts a vision that change is actually possible. And Paul is going to give us four practices for us to engage in so that our lives, so if you're here this morning and you want your life to be different, Paul is saying it can be. And these four things will help you see life change in your life. This is what Paul says. This is chapter 12 of Romans, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Now, chapter 12 in the book of Romans marks a new section, a new section that goes chapter 12 through the end of Romans to chapter 16. And it's a section that's so highly practical, so much of Romans, especially if you read through the whole thing, chapters 1 through 11 is this dense, deep theology with all of these difficult Old Testament references. But once you hit chapter 12, Paul starts speaking very clearly, very directly, and in very practical terms, very straightforward with lots of directives. And you see that right away in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12. And the first thing that Paul is encouraging the recipients of Romans to do is to recognize God's mercy. He says, recognize God's mercy. Now, in some ways, right, because you see the therefore there, therefore is a connecting word. In some ways, Paul is connecting what he's about to say to what he has just said, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Because in 9, 10, and 11, he uses the term mercy seven times. So he says, in view of God's mercy, which we have just been talking about for the last three chapters, live in this way. But Paul is also connecting this moment, not just with the last three chapters, 
But with everything that he has said up to this point, with all of what he's said in Romans, namely the gospel, in view of God's mercy, to say it another way, in view of the gospel, because that's why he's writing. That's what he wants to tell this church the most because he starts his letter saying that. Chapter one, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. If you want change in your life, the power to change comes from God's mercy. It comes from the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Saying that God, the God of the universe, the God who speaks and things come into existence, the God who has left his high place in heaven to come to you, to give his life for you, to enter into the grave and come out of the grave three days later to ascend back to the Father, to say, I'm bringing together all things. And therefore, you have peace in the midst of challenging times. You have hope when things are difficult. The gospel tells us that you are a new creation. So in view of that, in view of the reality that you are new, he goes on to say, do this, live this way. And the assumption of the New Testament and all of the scriptures is that God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, God's mercies are new. They're continual every day. You read that in Lamentations. Lamentations 3, the writer says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so if God's mercies are new every morning, the invitation here, the practice here, is to recognize that not just once, not on occasion, but daily. The recognition of God's mercies in your life is a daily practice. So that means for us this morning, who has recognized the mercy of God this morning? Anybody? Anybody been able to recognize? Yeah. I walked downstairs in the house of the friends we were staying, uh, and my friend forgot to make coffee for me this morning, so I went and made it for myself. But as soon as I poured that first cup, I was like, oh, the mercies of God are sweet and steadfast every morning when I have my coffee, right? Like I walked outside and it was muggy this morning and I was like, mmm, that feels so good. I know for like you people, it's like, oh, it's hot. But coming from the north, I'm like, I will take the heat any day. The mercies of God are all around us all the time. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? Are we aware of it? Can we recognize it, name it, and live into that? And so the practice here is to recognize it, but it's not just simply to recognize it. Paul is also encouraging us to respond to it. The invitation, if practice number one is to recognize God's mercy, the second practice is to respond. It's an invitation to respond to it. And how you respond is this. He says, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So what Paul is doing here 
is he's calling on temple imagery of the Old Testament. Because before Jesus, the Israelites had to do all of these sacrifices. They would go to the temple on an annual basis throughout the year. They would perform sacrifices, make sacrifices. The Old Testament is full of how you do it, when you do it, what you do. All of these sacrifices were part of the normal everyday life. The book of Leviticus is all about it. But Paul is saying, because of Jesus, you no longer have to engage in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, but the call of our faith is to continue to make offerings. The thing we offer isn't animals, wheat, or grain. It's ourselves. And it's all of who we are. Eugene Peters' version of the Bible, The Message, says it this way. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That's the call, is to give our lives to God, which raises the question, what are you giving your life to? Because the reality is we're all giving our lives to something. We're all giving our lives to someone or something because we were people who were created to find meaning and significance in a source outside of ourselves. And when we think we have found that, the natural thing we do is give ourselves to that thing, whether it's a job or a relationship or your kids. We are all giving ourselves sacrificially to something. The question is, what is it for you? And if you're here this morning and you're like, I, yeah, I've always assumed it's God, but Maybe there is something else in my life I'm actually giving my life to other than God, but I don't know what that is. The question is, well, how, how do you figure that out? How do you discern what it is you're giving your life to? Well, you follow two simple things. You follow two simple things that surface from within, and those two things are your desire and your fear. If you follow your desire... And if you follow your fear, you will find the object to which you are giving your life, your desire and your fear. Uh, this is a picture of a band called Mute Math. They were a band from the early 2000s. They were formed in New Orleans, Louisiana. And they were kind of like this like indie Christian rock band. Um, and they, their first album was a self-titled album called Mute Math. One of their songs on that album is a song called You Are Mine. And I'm going to play you a clip of it in just a second, but I want you to listen to how they name that your desire is the thing that actually rules your life. That your desire is the thing that guides how you live. Go ahead and listen to a clip of this song.
there's another four minutes left in that song, and basically, it's just the chorus repeated over and over for four minutes. You are mine, you are mine, you are mine. It's as though the songwriter knows that there is this thing in my life that I'm obsessing over, right? Everyone has objects of affection that mesmerize their soul. We, we like to say, oh, yeah, 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 that, that's a God in my life, but is it really? Is it really? What is the thing that captures your desire? So, so I'm on sabbatical this summer. Part of why we're traveling so extensively as a family is I'm on sabbatical. In the month leading up to my sabbatical, people were saying, are you looking forward to it? Aren't you looking forward to it? And I was like, I was ambivalent. I was like, yeah, I don't know. Because I am an approval junkie, like big time. And when I'm at church on Sundays and people are encouraging me and telling me that they love me being their pastor and it's so great and you are such an encouragement to me today, pastor, that word you spoke was so good. I'm like, am I going to be able to survive without that in my life for three months? I told people, I'm like, I'm worried that I'm going to be like an addict going through withdrawals. Like, that's why I had to preach at Dunwoody Community Church halfway through my sabbatical just to get my fix because I love when people tell good things to me about me, right? Like, that is my desire at work. And when you're in ministry, it's really twisted because it can look like you're serving God when in reality, you're just serving yourself. It's our desire that guides our life. The thing that you desire most is the thing you will give your life to, or it's the thing you fear the most. Back in 2020, Netflix put out a documentary on Taylor Swift called Miss Americana. Anybody seen this? Anybody watch this? No Swifties out there this morning? Okay. Uh, so it was 2020, and like there was nothing to do. And it was late one night. The kids were in bed. Becky was asleep. I turned on Netflix, and I saw this. I'm like, oh, I wonder what Taylor Swift is up to these days. And so I just started watching the documentary. And there's this scene early on in the documentary, 10, 15 minutes in, where she is sitting on her couch in her living room, and she's waiting for her agent and manager to call her. It's Grammy nomination day of 2018, and she's waiting by her phone to see if she is nominated for her most recent album, Reputation, for any Grammys. So she's waiting there, the phone rings, and her agent is talking to her for a little bit, and she says, okay, Taylor, so here's the deal. In all of the major categories, which are album of the year, song of the year, record of the year, you are not nominated for anything. And you can just see in that scene the deflation in Taylor Swift's body language. And just after a moment, she pulls herself together. She says, okay, 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 this is okay. I just have to make a better record. And her her manager says, no, 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 Taylor, reputation is a good record. It's a great record. She's like, no, 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 this is okay. I just have to make a better record. Now, up to, Taylor, up to that point in Taylor Swift's life, all she did was win. Like every time she turns around, she's winning. 2010, one of the youngest female artists to win album of the year for her album Fearless. The year prior took home all kinds of Grammys for her album 1989. She just like absolutely kills it. She has been nominated all over the place for all the award shows for 1,143 awards. 
She has won 588 different awards. All Taylor Swift does is win. She's also one of the most wealthy women in music today, worth $740 million. People were paying thousands of dollars for one ticket to go see her Eras concert this year. And she is quoted, not in this film, but in another place of saying, I'm intimidated by the fear of being average. Taylor Swift is anything but average, but she has this fear in her that drives her. I've always gotta be better. I've always gotta be on top. I've always gotta win because if I don't, then what or who am I? And what the Bible says is that when you follow your desire and when you follow your fear, what that is, is worship. It's what that is. It's worship. The biblical idea of ordering your life around your desire and around your fear is worship. That, that's why you read in the Psalms and the Proverbs, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. The call is not to just pursue God out of obligation and duty, but to pursue him out of desire and love. And when we do that, worship naturally follows, and sacrificing and offering our life to him naturally follows. That's why Paul says, he says in this passage, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When you follow your desire, when you follow your fear, when you sacrifice your life to that thing, it's called worship. Practice number one is to recognize God's mercy. Practice, practice number two is to respond to his mercy by offering yourself to him. Practice number three, he says in verse two, is to be distinct from the world. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And so the question for us this morning, the first question we have to ask is, well, what is the pattern of this world. All right, here's a little congregation participation. You ready? If I've lost you, hopefully this will wake you up a little bit. I want something from you. Let's engage. What is the pattern of this world? Paul's saying, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, where if we're not gonna be conformed to it, we first have to know what it is. So what would you say is the pattern of this world? You can just shout it out. What, what would you say is the pattern of this world? There's, there's more, more than just one answer. What is that? Success, yep. Me first, right? What's that? Love of money, yes. What else? Pleasures, yes. Anybody else? What's that? War, right. Violence, power. If I don't get my way, I'm going to grab it from you, right? I'm going to use force to take it from you. Anybody else? Consumption, yep, yep. We consume, consume, consume. Yep, loving others, yep. What else? The list that I came up with real quick was pleasure, autonomy. It's like, it's my way or the highway. Success, convenience, tolerance, tolerance, and consumerism. And it would be really easy to look at the world and stand in a posture of condemnation of the world. Like we are called not to conform to the world, but I'm going to condemn the world. But the reality is, whatever we consider the pattern of this world, we are also in danger 
of falling prey to it. Like that's why Paul is reminding the Romans not to conform to it. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we naturally do. I naturally pursue, I, I wanna succeed. I wanna make a name for myself. I want things my way, right? The reality is we relatively do this. We, we um, instinctually do the same. And, and so what I have here, to, to kind of illustrate this, I have some, some Play-Doh, just to have a little fun. And what happens when you conform something, you take, like, if we're the Play-Doh in this little mold, which is a dolphin, is the culture, and we just conform to that, it's a very passive act, right? We conform to whatever's around us, and then, you know, well, here you have it. Out pops, what is it? A dolphin, right? Ta-da! And how many of us are living this way? Like, there it is. Like, we just push ourselves into the culture. There's nothing, like, really amazing about this. I mean, an 18-month-year-old or an 18-month-old can do this, right? Like, just conform something. You take another piece of Play-Doh and you squish it into a mold. And then, uh, again, nothing really fancy or beautiful or amazing. I mean, if it's your kid, you might be like, oh, it's the best thing ever. I can't believe you did that, right? But it takes zero brain power to push Play-Doh into a mold and out pops a star, right? Paul is saying, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, rather be transformed. Being conformed is a passive act. The call is to live intentionally. So this picture up here is a little sculpture one of my daughters made, right? And, and I love this little sculpture. It sits on the, the shelf in our living room and I love this sculpture because there's lots of intentionality to this sculpture. There's shape to it, there's design, there's color. I mean, it's supposed to be a little pitcher and you can pour stuff from it. There's these little like patterns that are pushed into it and each pattern has its own unique cult, uh, color. There was intentionality that went in to making this little sculpture. Paul is saying, don't live passively. Do not conform to the pattern of the world because that's just a passive way to live. Rather, live intentionally and be transformed because when you are transformed, it's a beautiful outcome. Paul is saying, live distinct. Be set apart. He says, do not conform, but be transformed. And, and what Paul means is simply live lives that are holy. He'll go on to say that, to, to live lives that are holy. And sometimes we think, well, holy is being like proper and religious and pious. All holy means is to be distinct, to be set apart, to be different than what's around you. The call is to be distinct from the world so that they see that there's something different from us. It's not like we just try harder to do this. The way that we do this, and this is practice number four, is we do it through the renewing of our mind. Be transformed, he says, by the renewing of our mind. Now, sometimes we think this idea of renewing of our mind means I just need to learn more. I need more info in my head. And not that knowledge is bad, but knowledge doesn't necessarily transform. Knowledge doesn't necessarily renew your mind. Knowledge might fill your mind, 
but it might not renew it. Because the danger with acquiring more knowledge is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. He says, knowledge can easily puff up. It can make you have a big head. You can grow prideful and, and egotistical. Knowledge puffs up, he says. So what does it mean to renew our mind? Well, well, I think it starts with the act of repentance. Because when you repent, what you're doing is you're simply changing your mind. The, The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. And there's actually two words smushed together to make that one word. It's the word meta, which means with. It's a preposition that means with. And it's in the word noia, which means mind. So repentance, the, word, the Greek word for repentance actually just means with mind, with your mind. To, you could say it this way, change the way you think about things. And so you could say what Paul is trying to communicate here is that changing your life starts with changing your mind. Changing your life starts with changing your mind, and then the question is, well, how do I do that? Like, change my mind about what exactly? What is it that I'm supposed to think differently about? Maybe you've heard this before, but there's lots of people who who write on the art of storytelling and what stories are, and there are a lot of scholars out there who will say, we are storied people. Like, we live in stories. We tell stories. How many times when you gather with your family for a holiday meal, do you just start telling stories? I mean, this week, we've just been telling stories with all our friends about things we used to do when we were together. Stories are just a part of us. They're instinctual to us. We are storied people. Stories form us as well. Stories shape us. Stories are around us all the time. We are consuming them every day. But one of the places we see it the most is in the advertising world. Um, and I want to show you a commercial in just a moment. It's a commercial, it's a Cadillac commercial that was uh, played in the Super Bowl of 2014. And it was hailed that year to be maybe the ad of the year. Once it went out, like it was early in the year, right? Because the Super Bowl is in early February. People were saying this could be the ad of the year. And see if you can pick out what the story is that this ad is telling. Go ahead and take a look. Why do we work so hard? For what? For this? For stuff? Other countries, they work, they stroll home, they stop by the cafe, they take August off. Off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy, driven, hard-working believers, that's why. Those other countries think we're nuts. Whatever. Were the Wright brothers insane? Bill Gates, Les Paul, Ali. Were we nuts when we pointed to the moon? That's right. We went up there, you know what we got? Bored. So we left. Got a car up there, left the keys in it. Do you know why? Because we're the only ones going back up there, that's why. But I digress. It's pretty simple. You work hard, you create your own luck, and you gotta believe anything is possible. As for all the stuff, that's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. Nespa? That ad is dripping with arrogance, right? Dripping with pride. And I so resonate with it, right? I so resonate with it. The reason why I'm apprehensive to take a sabbatical is because I love to work. 
I love to work hard. I love to achieve. I love to get things done. I love to make things happen. And these stories are all around us all the time. The, the story of America is we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We make our life happen. We do it. And then we have the life to display to everybody that we've done it. And I'm like, yes. And Jesus is saying, maybe we should live a different way. Maybe it's not about you making something of your life, but maybe it's about you making something of him with your life. And there's a different story that we're called not only to tell, but to live into that will make us look different from the world. It's a story where we don't rise to the top, but we actually seek the bottom. And in seeking the bottom, we serve. We serve those around us. We sacrifice our life to God and the people around us to show the world that what we're really about is loving the world so that they might come to know him. And so the question is this morning, yeah, what is the story you're telling yourself? What is the story you're living into? What is the story that is, uh, that is controlling your life and how do you need to think differently to change your mind about it. See, see, renewing our minds means that we tell ourselves the story of God's mercy daily. We recognize his mercy. We respond to it, respond to it. And as we do, we become noticeably different from the world around us. And then you'll have these different desires at work in your heart, desires for peace, desires to see other people succeed, desires to be generous and to give your life away. You won't be controlled by fear, but you'll be controlled by love. And then you'll become wise, because here's how Paul ends this passage. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Sometimes we think God's will for my life is this secret mystery, right? This code that I have to crack, and if I crack the code of God's will for my life, then I'll know what I'm supposed to do. But you find these two places in the book of Thessalonians where Paul's really explicit about God's will, right? He says in chapter 5, uh, five verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians, God's will for your life is to give thanks in all circumstances, to be grateful. That's God's will for your life. He says in chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, God's will is for you to be sanctified, that your life would change specifically to look more and more like Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're saying, yeah, I would love my life to be different, Paul's saying start by recognizing God's mercy daily in your life. Respond to it by offering yourself to him in worship, right? To then practice being distinct and different from the world and renew your mind through repentance, telling yourself the story of God rather than the story of this world. And so as we close, the question is, which of those four practices resonates with you the most? As we step into this new school year, which one do you need to be intentional about to say like, yeah, I, I need to practice daily recognizing God's mercy, or, or I need to daily tell myself a new story. If you're here this morning and you want your life to be different, it starts with changing your mind, renewing your mind by recognizing God's mercy, by responding to it through worship, by telling yourself a new story, 
and watch yourself be distinct from the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the goodness and the mercy and the grace that you have poured out upon us, Lord. We ask that we would have eyes to see how you are at work in our lives. We ask that as we leave this place today that your mercy and the evidence of your mercy would be all around us all the time and that we'd have eyes to see it. That we would be able to see the world the way you see the world and that we would be able to engage with it in a way that glorifies you rather than glorifies ourselves. Give us the courage to be those type of people to do those types of things. We pray this in your name. Amen.